0: Uh, We're going to read from Malachi chapter 2, uh, verse 17, and we're going to read to verse 5 of chapter 3. And that can be found on page 802 of the church Bibles, if you've got a Bible on the chairs near you. It's also going to appear on the screen. So Malachi chapter 2, reading from verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offspring of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppose the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, as we get ready to look at that, let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for this time to gather round your word. And we pray that as we come to these Uh, words in Malachi that you would speak to us by your Spirit. Lord, you know the weeks that we've had. You know the things that are going on in our lives. You know us at the deepest level, and you know what we need to hear today. So we pray, Lord God, that we would be receptive to your voice today, that you would speak to us, that you would still our hearts, that you would lift our eyes to to see you today. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I wonder, what does it take to make you weary? Weariness, it's a bit different from uh, simply being tired. It's something that we can experience when we are faced with a, a situation there where there seems to be no real end in sight It could be perhaps a a difficult relational situation that just doesn't seem to have any prospect of resolution, or a a long-term illness with debilitating effects that you've maybe been enduring for perhaps years. Or maybe it's a job that's just a real grind and it has worn you down. You know, it wasn't so long ago that we endured the, the wearying effects of the, the pandemic as we waited and waited for the restrictions on our lives to lift. And the hangover of that wearying experience is still being felt by many. Weariness it can leave us feeling drained, discouraged, depleted, and it's something that can affect all of us at some point or another. But I wonder Have you ever thought that God could be wearied? Seems a strange idea, doesn't it? How could the all powerful God of the universe, who has infinite resources, who sustains his creation moment by moment, who who keeps the planets turning, the God who the psalmist says never slumbers nor sleeps, how could he possibly be wearied? Well, the passage that we're looking at today, it makes it clear that it is possible to weary God. In fact, God makes it clear to His people through the prophet Malachi that that is exactly what they have done with their words. If you look with me at verse 17, God tells them, you have wearied the Lord with your words. It's quite an accusation, isn't it? You know, how could somebody weary God with their words? How are we meant to understand that? After all, doesn't God delight to hear our prayers? Repeatedly, in Scripture, we see God invite us to to come to Him with whatever it is that's on our hearts, whatever it might be that, that wearies us, to cast our burdens on Him. You know, the Psalms are full of examples of people pouring out their hearts to God all kinds of deep emotions are expressed. So, what is it that these people could possibly say that would weary God? Well, God explains that there is a form of communication that wearies Him, and it's the form of dialogue that we've seen throughout this book. We've seen as we've studied Malachi over the past few weeks that this book is shaped around six disputations Six times God makes a declaration, and six times the people dispute it, they question it. But that questioning, it's not done out out of a, a genuine desire to understand God and His ways. No, it's done out of cynicism and unbelief. And it's that kind of cynical questioning, that kind of unbelief from people who should have known better that wearies God. And in the passage we're looking at today, we see the fourth of those disputations in this book. God declares, verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, the complaint of the people here, it's one that that is probably fairly familiar to us. It's one that we often hear from someone who maybe doesn't believe in God. Uh, You know, maybe you're not a Christian here today, and maybe that's something that that you would have an objection in terms of belief in God. Uh, It would be something along the lines of, well, if there was a God, then He wouldn't allow bad people to flourish. But because bad people seem to get away with evil, well, then there can't be a God. It's the kind of thing that we're maybe used to hearing, from someone who doesn't believe in God. But what's shocking about these words here is that they are spoken by people who should have known better. They're spoken by Israel, by God's own people. Now remember, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, and so God's people could look back on centuries of history of God's dealings with them, how He had entered into a covenant with them and made them His own. How he'd rescued them from slavery in Egypt and led them to the promised land. How he'd repeatedly delivered them from their enemies despite their unfaithfulness. How he'd promised to dwell with them in his temple and promised them that one day he would send a king who would rule forever in love and justice and peace. These people had been given the incredible privilege of an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. They had so many examples of his love and faithfulness that they could look back on. And yet here they were, cynically questioning his character, to the point that they were even willing to say that the God of all goodness and holiness delighted in evil. These were words of unbelief uttered by a people who should have known far better. But we only need to look back on what we've already seen in this book to see what led them to that place. Remember, the people of Malachi's day had returned from exile. They were living back in the the land, and the temple had been rebuilt, but they were disillusioned. They were still under a a foreign power and and generations had come and gone without the arrival of God's promised king. Alongside all of that, God was nowhere to be seen. That's what it felt like. Their, Their present circumstances and situations were bitter. When Solomon had built the temple, it had immediately been filled with God's glory. And the prophet Haggai had promised that this rebuilt temple would have an even greater measure of God's glory than Solomon's temple had had. But the reality was that Israel was still waiting. And as far as they were concerned, there really was no sign that God was going to turn up. And while they waited, and while they looked around at the surrounding nations prospering While they suffered, they grew cynical. And we've seen that cynicism play out in this book. They begin at the start of Malachi by cynically questioning God's love for them. And because they doubted God's love for them, well, that led to empty worship. And that empty worship just turning up at the temple and throwing any sacrifice on the altar, that led to faithlessness. And that faithless disobedience then led them to the place where we find them in these verses, cynically questioning God's very existence. Asking the question, where is the God of justice? Not out of genuine inquiry, but from a place of unbelief. It's such a a tragic decline in their relationship with God, and it should act as a warning for us, for anyone who sets down the same path that they did, that this is where that path leads. Cynically questioning God's love because our present circumstances aren't as we would like them to be, that leads to growing cold towards Him in worship which leads to disobedience to his commands, which eventually leads to unbelief. Each step takes us further and further away from God until we end up in the place that these Israelites did, a place that wearies God. And there's something that's characteristic about their questioning that we would do well to be aware of lest we find ourselves guilty of the same thing. Notice, they're grumbling. It isn't actually addressed to God. It's addressed to one another. Unlike the Psalms, where people cry out to God, they express their frustration to Him. They bring their complaints to Him. These people, they were bringing their complaints not to God, they were complaining about Him. You see, God wants us to be totally honest with Him, to bring whatever is on our hearts to Him. But that's not what these people did. Instead, they, they grumbled amongst one another. They spread distrust of God amongst the community. Complaining to God is biblical. It's a demonstration of belief that we would bring our deepest hurts to Him. But complaining about God spreads unbelief. When I complain that God isn't good because my circumstances are bitter, when I complain that God doesn't love me because others are prospering while I'm struggling, when I complain about God to others, that is wearying, not just for God, but for my brothers and sisters in Christ because it's a denial of who God really is. It's a failure to recognize how He has revealed Himself to us in His Word, of how He has acted in history. It's a denial of His character, of His goodness, His mercy, and His steadfast love. It's a failure to trust in His promises, and ultimately, it's to lose sight of the grace that He has shown us in Jesus Christ. Instead, our conversations about God ought to be conversations that build up, not tear down, that strengthen, not weary our brothers and sisters. You know, we have this incredible opportunity as we gather here to encourage one another as we remind one another of who God is and what He's done. That's what we do when we we gather to worship. We remind one another of the truths that we believe. So that we can build each other up and spur each other on to remember God's goodness and mercy, to experience the blessing of walking closely with Him, to be reminded of who we are as forgiven people with a sure and certain hope, whatever our present circumstances might be. As we sing, great is thy faithfulness, and we sing those words out, and we can think of the way He has been faithful, not only in our own lives, but in the lives of those who are gathered with us. And we began this morning with that call to worship from Psalm 34, O oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt His name together. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in Him. You know, whatever we are facing in our lives, whatever struggles, whatever challenges, as we gather together here and we lift our voices as one in worship, we remind each other of the bigger reality that God is sovereign over our lives. That whatever we are facing right now, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. And as we remind each other by speaking the truths of the gospel to one another, We don't deny the difficulties of our present circumstances, but we do set them in their proper context, that whatever we are facing, we are blessed if we take refuge in Him. Isn't it incredible that we can do that? That we can build each other up as we worship together, that we can speak the words of God to one another, so that our confidence in His promises grows. What a blessing it is to be able to gather like this and experience that, experience words of refreshment, words of comfort, words of rest, so that we can go out from here with our minds and our hearts renewed by the truth of who God is. And what a curse it is. When the opposite happens, when we weary one another by spreading lies about God, by cynically questioning His love and His holiness and His goodness in our lives, just as these people did here, when we do that, it leads to discouragement and unbelief, and yet despite their wearying cynicism, despite their unbelief, God, in His mercy, responds to their questions. And in his response, we see the ultimate answer to to suffering and injustice that God is not distant, that he is not unable to act, but that there is purpose in our pain and a promise that justice will be done and it will be seen to be done. And that's what we see in these verses. If you look with me at verse 1 of chapter 3, in response to their faithless question, Where is the God of justice? God declares, Behold, that's Luke. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God says, you want to know where I am? Well, look, look at me, behold. And he proceeds to tell them exactly what the God of justice will do. He gives them very specific details about a messenger who will prepare the way for him. And he refers again to this messenger in verse 5 of chapter 4. He says there, "'Behold, look, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes.'" Now, Elijah was Israel's most famous prophet, and he had lived centuries before, and the promise of Malachi is that this messenger would be like the great Elijah, who would, he would prepare the way for the Lord. And while the people in Malachi's day never saw the fulfillment of that promise, uh, we only need to turn over a couple of pages in our Bible to the New Testament, the next book in our Bible, Matthew's Gospel, to see these words being fulfilled. Jesus explains in Matthew chapter 11 that that John the Baptist, who had been given the task of announcing Jesus' arrival, he is the one like Elijah, the one who fulfills these words in Malachi chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 11 verse 10 Jesus quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and then he goes on to say in verse 11 truly I say to you among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist and then in verse 14 if you are willing to accept that he is Elijah who is to come Now all of that just simply to say that by equating John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus With the promised messenger in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, the one who prepares the way for God, what Jesus is claiming is that he is God on earth. A claim that is right at the heart and is central to the Christian faith that God himself entered the world in the person of Jesus Christ. These people were waiting for the fulfillment of Haggai's prophecy that God's presence would fill the temple in a greater way than ever before. And in Jesus, that promise was fulfilled. But see, here's the thing. The the people in Malachi's day, they they thought that when God finally came to the temple, that could only be good news for them. God refers to the fact that they delight in this messenger of the covenant in verse 1, which that messenger of the covenant is a reference to him. They thought that that Jesus, or the promised one, this messenger of the covenant, uh, would be good news when He finally came. But the reality was very different, because with Jesus' arrival came justice. They asked, where is the God of justice? Well, the promise is that the God of justice was coming. And God warns them of what that coming would look like, verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming, and who can stand When he appears. You see, these people, they were so busy complaining about the way that the wicked prospered that they failed to see who they were in God's sight. They thought that because they were Israel, that they were the chosen ones, that they were the ones who belonged to God already by covenant. They thought that they were fine. When in reality, they were faithless. They had deluded themselves into thinking that justice would be reserved for their enemies, when in reality they had demonstrated by their attitude to God that they too deserved His judgment. That a perfect, holy God would not and could not stand idly by and not deal with their sin and unbelief. When God asks who can endure the day of his coming, who can stand when he appears, the answer was no one. These faithless people, they deserved judgment. But in his mercy, God promises that he will bring cleansing to them. Read verse 2, For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So the image that we have there is of a a refiner's fire, is one that's designed to get rid of the dross and to purify, to cleanse, and to, to perfect. And that's what these people needed. They, they needed to be cleansed. We saw the other week how the priests had, had despised God's name and, and polluted the temple worship by offering shoddy sacrifices, by, by turning a blind eye to the, 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 the three-legged lambs that the people were chucking on the altar. And so God needed to cleanse and renew their worship so that their offerings would be pleasing to Him once again. And in Matthew chapter 21, we see a partial fulfillment of that when Jesus entered the temple in Jerusalem and turned over the tables of the money changers. He accused them of making his father's house of worship a den of robbers. Just in Malachi's day, the people of God, who who should have known better, they were guilty of trampling God's name underfoot. And so Jesus, he cleansed the temple. In Jesus, God's presence entered the temple just as Haggai had promised, in a far greater way that the incarnate God walked in. But the cleansing that these people needed, the cleansing that we need, was of a far greater and deeper nature than what went into the temple that day. It was a cleansing that was achieved, ultimately the cross, When Jesus went to his death as the perfect sacrifice for sin. It's through his death that we can be purified as Jesus bears all the impurity of those who trust in him. It's through his death that we can be cleansed no matter what our sin might be. That's the wonderful news of the Christian faith that no matter who we are, no matter what we may have done in our lives, however, impure we might feel. In Jesus Christ, there is cleansing, complete and utter cleansing. It's an incredible measure of God's grace that despite their cynicism, despite their unbelief, God still promised His people that one day this cleansing would come. But not only that, that that cleansing would be achieved by His own Son bearing all the filth, all the dross, all the impurity of our lives, that we would be clothed in Jesus' sinless, perfect robes while Jesus clothed himself in our filthy, sinful rags. It's through Jesus' cleansing work that we can know what it is to receive mercy, to know forgiveness, to know peace with God, and not the judgment that God warns about at the end of verse 5. If you look with me there, then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, abasing those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So this passage closes with a sobering warning, in answer to their cynical claims that God delights in evil. In answer to their cynical question, where is the God of justice? God promises that He will judge, and He will be swift to judge against all wickedness, against all injustice. That is a wonderful truth to take hold of if you are suffering at the hands of another If you are facing injustice, it's a wonderful truth to take hold of in a world where we see injustice and wickedness seemingly going unpunished. We can trust that God is just and He will deal with all injustice one day. It was a warning for them then, but it's also a warning for anyone today who doesn't throw themselves on His mercy, who doesn't put their trust in the Lord Jesus. It's Jesus who is the one who can bear that judgment in our place. He is the one who can satisfy God's justice. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, can I encourage you to heed the warning today that we have in this passage? See it as a gracious thing, a loving thing, that God is giving you the opportunity to turn to Him before it's too late. Meet the God of mercy today so that you don't meet him in judgment tomorrow. Know his grace. Know his forgiveness. Know that whatever complaints you may have had about him, that there is forgiveness and grace and reconciliation and mercy available if you come to him and address him. Know what it is to stand blameless in his sight because of the cleansing work of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian today, perhaps you're weary. Maybe you're asking God, why? Why am I enduring this pain? Why am I facing this injustice? Where are you, God, in this? If that's you, then take heart. Know that God always has a purpose in His people's pain." that he will see that justice is done and he is still in the business of refining his people in the midst of our suffering in first peter chapter 1 verse 6 to 7 we read in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The God of justice is right there with us in the midst of our sufferings. He is right there purifying us, perfecting us, cleansing us. Do you know at what moment the refiner knows that the refining process is complete? It's as they look into the furnace and they see that all the dross, all the impurities are burnt away, and they can see their image reflected in the molten metal. Don't waste your weariness. Trust God in the midst of it. He's the God of justice who is working out His purpose in all things, not just good things, in the bad things too. And as He purifies you As He gets rid of the dross, He is making you more and more in the image of His Son. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank You that You are good. We thank You that You are just, that there is no wrong that will not go unpunished, that there is no injustice in our world that will last forever that ultimately you will judge all wickedness. Lord, help us to take hold of that in times where we maybe feel that we are facing injustice, where we maybe feel that we have been wronged. Lord, would we trust you with all things? Would we take our bitterness to you? Would we take our anger to you? Would we know that in the Lord Jesus, he is the one who deals with our sin? with our wrongdoing. And Lord, we thank you that you are a God who delights to hear our prayers. Lord, we can weary you when we complain about you, but you delight it when we come to you with whatever it is that's on our hearts, whether it is frustration or upset or uh, disillusionment, whatever it might be, we thank you that we can come to you. So we pray that we would do that. And Lord God, we pray that in all all things ultimately, we would see your goodness and mercy beyond our present circumstances, that we would reflect on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the one who has borne the penalty for our sin, who secured for us glorious eternal kingdom in his resurrection. And we pray that we would see our lives in the light of that. We pray that as we come to the table now to take bread and wine, as we uh, reflect again on his sacrifice for us, that we would throw ourselves in your mercy, and we would trust, entrust ourselves to you in our suffering. We pray these things in Jesus' name.